Texas Governor Greg Abbott speaks out about the mass shooting yesterday that left 19 children and two adults dead. It is intolerable and it is unacceptable for us to have in the state anybody who would kill little kids in our school. It's Wednesday, May 25th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. We'll have the latest on the investigation during which the suspect as well died. A survivor of the 2018 school shooting in Parkland, Florida, talks about working through grief. The only thing keeping me together was my classmates and my teachers and people who who knew exactly how I was feeling. Insights on what the people of Uvalde, Texas are going through. Also, former President Trump sees his influence in Republican politics take a hit in some notable primaries where both his picks lost. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. New information is emerging about the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas yesterday that claimed the lives of 19 children and two faculty members at an elementary school. NPR's Ashley Lopez has the latest. Governor Greg Abbott said that in addition to the 21 people who were killed, 17 people were injured in the shooting. According to Abbott, earlier in the day, the 18-year-old gunman shot his grandmother in the face and then she contacted police. He says the shooter barricaded himself in a classroom that was connected to another classroom. Law enforcement says this is where most of the killings took place. Abbott says officials have learned more about the gunman since yesterday. He may have had a juvenile record, but that is yet to be determined. There was no known mental health history. Abbott says the gunman, who was a high school dropout, used an AR-15 in the shooting, which he purchased in March. Abbott also says there was no meaningful forewarning of the crime, except for social media posts half an hour before he began shooting. Ashley Lopez, NPR News, Uvalde. Heckling erupted during Abbott's news conference as Beto O'Rourke, the Democratic candidate seeking to unseat Governor Abbott, walked to the stage and accused him and other Republicans of doing nothing to prevent mass shootings in America's schools. Emotions flared around the politics of the debate around gun control as Abbott spoke at length about the need to address mental health problems around gun violence. Critics want stronger gun control measures. The National Rifle Association is scheduled to hold its gathering in Houston on Friday. One thing everyone could agree on, the community is grieving. NPR's John Burnett has more. A local insurance agent with tears streaming down his cheeks told me people moved to Uvalde to get away from big city problems. They just can't fathom them that this carnage happened in their little town where the most excitement up to this point uh, has been border patrol chases. That's NPR's John Burnett reporting. In other news, congressional forecasters think the federal government will run a trillion dollar deficit this year. NPR's Scott Horsley reports that's down from nearly $3 trillion worth of red ink in 2021. Budget forecasters think the U.S. economy will grow just over 3% this year, with somewhat slower growth in the years to come. Both inflation and interest rates are expected to be higher than forecasters were predicting last summer. Tax revenues as a share of the economy are the strongest they've been in two decades, but that's expected to decline in the years to come. On the other hand, government spending as a share of the economy is expected to increase, thanks to costs associated with an aging population and higher interest payments on the government's debt. Congressional forecasters think deficits will average about $1.6 trillion a year over the next decade. Scott Horsley, Impair News, Washington. 
The Dow Jones Industrial Average closes up nearly 200 points or more than half a percent. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston police say they'll be assessing security at schools in the city in response to the deadly shooting in Texas yesterday. At a news conference today, Mayor Michelle Wu says shootings such as yesterday's massacre are possible anywhere. We are not immune from what we see happening in other parts of the country. I have full faith and trust in our ability to respond, but we don't even ever want to be in that position to begin with, and we do so by building the safe, welcoming, healthy communities that we know is possible here. Boston School Superintendent Brenda Caselia says the shooting should prompt lawmakers to pass stronger gun legislation. U.S. Supreme Court is expected to rule in the coming weeks on a case that could affect gun laws in Massachusetts. The high court will decide whether states can restrict people from carrying guns in certain public spaces. Massachusetts has a law that allows police chiefs to limit where a licensed gun owner can take their weapon. In oral arguments, several justices indicated such laws may violate Second Amendment rights. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy says regulations are critical to providing public safety. Recreational marijuana will become legal in Rhode Island this fall. The governor signed a legalization bill this afternoon. It will allow the sale and possession of up to one ounce of cannabis for people ages 21 and older. Sales can begin in December. And the city of Salem is launching its new city-owned car-sharing program today. It's similar to bike-sharing. For this project, Salem is partnering with the digital platform GetAround. Mayor Kim Driscoll says it's another step toward more sustainable transportation and less congestion as the city grows. As a historic city, our roads were built for horse and buggy. So we're really trying to encourage and incentivize folks who are living in our community to maybe give up one of their cars if they're a two-car family, or maybe even live without a car, depending upon what their lifestyle needs are. Residents and visitors can reserve one of nine city-owned hybrid vehicles using an app. 68 degrees now in the Boston area. Sure is nice out there right now. Look for clear skies overnight tonight. Should be breezy and cool, about 53 degrees for a low. And then for tomorrow, sunny once again, up around 67 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Aspiration, a digital banking alternative designed for people who care about the environment. Customers can plant a tree with every swipe of their debit card to offset their carbon footprint. Aspiration.com green. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. We begin this hour in Uvalde, Texas, where we're learning more about what happened yesterday at Robb Elementary School, where 19 children were killed along with two adults. Texas Governor Greg Abbott spoke at a press conference earlier today. Our job is to ensure that the community is not going to be ripped apart. All Texans must come together and support the families who have been affected by this horrific tragedy. Paul Flav with Texas Public Radio is in Uvalde and was at that press conference. Paul, thank you for taking time to share your reporting with us today. Thank you. What more did you learn today about how this attack unfolded? Well, the press conference was at Uvalde High School, where 18-year-old Salvador Rolando Ramos would have been a senior. It was reported he dropped out. According to Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Ramos shot his grandmother in the face, and then she called the police. The two lived together only a couple of blocks from uh, the school. Authorities say Ramos fled and crashed the pickup truck he was driving in a ditch outside the school. The Texas Department of Public uh, Safety Director said Ramos was not being chased by law enforcement. Ramos made it past the campus resource officer who had engaged him but did not fire a weapon. 
and the shooter was able to enter the school through a back door into the school and into a classroom, and then he began shooting. Border Patrol agents and local law enforcement found the classroom after waiting 40 minutes. They breached the room, and a Border Patrol agent killed him. The investigation is in its preliminary stages and still ongoing. Authorities say they believe all the children were killed by Rami. And what else do we know about this gunman? Uh, authorities confirmed that his name is Salvador Ramos. Uh, we learned that he was a quiet kid, according to a couple of students that I spoke to outside the high school today. While Uvalde is the kind of place where people know everyone, they just sort of knew him as another classmate, one who at times was bullied for his speech impediment. Abbott said Ramos didn't have a mental health diagnosis, didn't have an adult criminal record, and it wasn't clear if he had run across the juvenile system. Is anything known yet for why he did this a reason? The Texas Department of Public Safety said there's no known motive. Uh, Governor Abbott says Ramos showed no outward signs of what was going to happen until about 30 minutes before. Ramos, according to authorities, took to Facebook and, and posted 30 minutes before shooting that, the shooting that he, quote, I, I'm going to shoot my grandmother. Not long after that, he posted, I shot my grandmother. Fifty minutes before he arrived at Robb Elementary, he said he would shoot up an elementary school. Fifteen minutes before he posted this. That's correct. Do we know much about the weapons he used? Ramos uh, purchased two AR-15s shortly after his 18th birthday in March. He abandoned one in the truck after crashing and used one in Rob Elementary. In response to a question about whether 18-year-olds should have access to weapons like the one used in the shooting, uh, here we can listen to what the governor said. The ability of an 18-year-old to uh, buy a long gun has uh, been in place uh, in the state of Texas for more than 60 years. Anybody who shoots somebody else has a mental health challenge, period. Abbott focused a lot on the importance of mental health and providing mental health care to the community, committing to ensuring Uvalde has access to mental health care it needs now. But we should point out that uh, he said uh, earlier in the news conference that the government himself did not have a history of mental illness that they're aware of. But it is worth noting that Texas ranks last in access to mental health personnel of all the states. It's especially bad for youth and in rural areas. That is Paul Flav of Texas Public Radio telling us the latest details on what we've learned about the shooting yesterday at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 children were killed along with two adults. Paul, thank you again for sharing your reporting. Thank you. It was two years ago today that a police officer killed George Floyd on a Minneapolis street corner, setting off global racial justice protests. Derek Chauvin is in prison for murder, and even though the three other former officers who are on duty with him are likely to face prison time as well, many Minneapolis residents say the systemic changes needed to prevent such tragedies are still far from reality. Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio reports. At the intersection where George Floyd was killed, cars and trucks trickle through a makeshift roundabout that encircles a black power fist sculpted of steel. Soon after the murder, people from around the world began coming here to pay their respects to Floyd, and they're still coming. Lamyra Sanders of Columbia, South Carolina, says she's hopeful that the racial justice movement sparked here will bring a fundamental shift in American policing. There is a place of sadness that still looms here And it is our prayer that one day that justice will be served and that this will not be a problem, you know. 
there's plenty of work to be done. While countless numbers of people have visited George Floyd Square over the last two years, Marsha Howard has been a constant presence here, leading a protest occupation of about a dozen people who keep the area tidy and watch uh, for trouble. Sure if you are At a meeting earlier this week, they discussed how to handle the crowds expected for the anniversary, starting with tonight's candlelight vigil. You make sure that you don't overextend yourself. Uh, we said that a year ago, you know, there were people who were doing 14-hour days out here in the sun. Minneapolis um, city leaders I, hope to build a permanent memorial here as part of a plan to rebuild the intersection. But Howard, a black 49-year-old high school English teacher and retired Marine, vows not to let that happen until there are substantive improvements in the way police treat people of color. The only thing that seems to change anything in the city of Minneapolis is collective action. We're standing in place in situ where a black man was lynched in public. And we're saying we're not moving. But Howard says little has fundamentally changed. She points to February's police killing of 22-year-old Amira Locke during a no-knock raid at the Minneapolis apartment where he was sleeping. Locke, who was black, was holding a gun, but he was not suspected of a crime, nor was he named in the search warrant. The calls for police reform were loudest in the weeks just after Floyd's murder, when Councilmember Jeremiah Ellison stood on a stage at a park with eight of his colleagues. At their feet, in large block letters, were the words, defund police. All right, they're telling me to say it again. This council is going to dismantle this police department. That did not happen. The council has continued to fund new recruit classes to replace the 300 officers who've left the force, which is plagued by low morale. And despite a poll showing deep mistrust of the MPD, last November, 56 percent of voters rejected a proposal to replace it with a new safety agency that would have included law enforcement, quote, if necessary. Cami Chavis, who leads the criminal justice program at Wake Forest University's law school, says the plan was bold, but its lag of details likely scared off voters. I think it was probably just a bridge too far for some people to say, well, wait a minute, we're going to do away with what we have and we're not sure what this new thing is you're proposing. Chavis says any transformational shift will come by court order. A U.S. Justice Department investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department is expected to result in judicial oversight through a consent decree. Mayor Jacob Fry has made some tweaks to policing policy, including banning chokeholds, low-level traffic stops, and no-knock raids. But critics point out that the latest police labor contract does not include tougher disciplinary procedures. While calls for significant lasting change are widespread, momentum has been uneven. Meanwhile, Marsha Howard and her fellow activists say they'll continue to honor Floyd's memory, not only with rallies and vigils, but by being present here for as long as it takes to bring meaningful change to policing. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in Minneapolis. My Unsung Hero is a series from the team at Hidden Brain, and it features stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression. Today's story comes from Walter Delgado. He grew up in El Salvador, and when he was 11, he began a dangerous journey with his grandfather to join his mother in the United States. They traveled by bus up through Central America and onto the Mexican border. Because they were undocumented, they had to make the last leg of their journey across the desert in the middle of the night by foot. Delgado remembers that his feet were hurting and he was freezing cold. Somewhere along the way, he met another traveler named Modesto. And I remember we just had, you know, normal, casual, like, small talk, like, where are you from, you know, all that. 
I didn't know that guy from back home. I didn't know anything about him. After six hours of walking and my feet started giving out, like I, I was tired and I just remember that I told him, like, hey, man, I can't, I can't my legs. And he just pulled me up, put me on his back and started walking. And he told me, don't worry, we almost there. We're going to make it. I'm going to make sure you, you're going to make it. And those are the words that he kept saying, you know, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. I was just worried about my grandpa as well, and I was worried about myself, you know, like, as you get those thoughts, you know, like, am I going to be left behind? I mean, there's so many people that they don't make it in that journey. So, you know, we just met on the trip, and to have the goodness, the willingness to carry someone, I must have been at least 90 pounds, probably 100 pounds. (laughs) So... He easily probably carried me for two to three hours. I am not exaggerating. And I just imagine, like, you know, he must have been tired too, you know, the whole time. It it just blows my mind. And it's one of those defining moments in my life where, like, it gives me hope and I can see that human beings can be a channel of goodness to the world. Everything that I have now... Everything that I've accomplished now, it takes me back to that moment. I can make more money. I can live comfortably. I have a good life now, thank God, and thanks to Modesto, because he was the one that made it all possible. Walter Delgado and his grandfather eventually made it to their destination. Delgado became a U.S. citizen and now lives in Houston and has a job he loves. His grandfather is now in his 80s. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Misinformation about the gunman in the Texas elementary school shooting and far-right organizations responsible for it coming up on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, kidney disease, and more. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. On Wall Street today, stocks are on an upswing. The Dow rose more than a half percent, 192 points, to finish the day at 32,120. S&P picked up about a full percent to close at 39.79. Nasdaq pulled in more than one and a half percent to close at 11,435. Shares of Springfield-based gunmaker Smith & Wesson rose today after the deadly mass shooting in Texas yesterday. The company's stock price went up nearly 7 percent. Gun company shares often rise after mass shootings. In response to fears, the incidents will lead to new gun control measures. The time is 4.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge, powering possibilities. Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. 
This is 90.9 WBUR, a beautiful May day with another nice night ahead tonight. Clear skies overnight, breezy and cool, about 53 for a low. And if you like today, you'll like tomorrow. Sunshine again up around 67. Clouds move in for Friday. Wind should pick up. Temperatures rise well into the 70s. As of now, it should stay in the 70s over the weekend. Very likely some showers on Saturday, but sunshine on Sunday. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. Well before verifiable information came out regarding the shooter who took 21 lives at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, misinformation, rumors, and conspiracy theories were already rampant in some far-right circles of social media. Some of this has come to be standard practice, since similar tactics were deployed after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting a decade ago. But there are some differences this time around. NPR's Odette Youssef covers domestic extremism and joins us now. Hi, Odette. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what are some of the threads that you saw emerging even as we are still learning about what happened in Uvalde? Well, immediately uh, we were seeing posts that assumed without any verifiable evidence things about the shooter's identity. You know, one of them was a claim that the shooter was undocumented. Well, yesterday, Texas Governor Abbott uh, said that Ramos was a U.S. citizen. Um, Another rumor also was that he's transgendered. Um, This appears to be based on some photos pulled from his presumed Instagram account. But again, there's no factual known information to base this on. I think something that's been particularly concerning about this is uh, that some elected officials, you know, I'm I'm, uh, particularly uh, noting Republican Representative Paul Gosar uh, amplified that line on his Twitter account um, and then later deleted it after it prompted a backlash. Hmm. Um, But as the day progressed, we also started to see the conspiracy theories come out. Conspiracy theories like what? What have you been seeing or hearing? Well, as with so many of these violent events, including January 6th and the more recent racist shooting in Buffalo, uh, the false flag argument is out there. Uh, You're probably well familiar with this by this point, Elsa, (laughs) but it claims without evidence that the attack was orchestrated by the government as an excuse to curtail gun rights. Uh, There's also another conspiracy theory floating out there that says... This shooter was part of a secret illegal CIA operation where the agency was attempting to brainwash subjects by using LSD or psychological torture. Of course, there's absolutely no evidence for this. And in fact, that program ended back in 1973. Um, Sarah Aniano is an extremism research I spoke to. She focuses on the rhetoric of the far right on social media. And she says it's unlikely these conspiracy theories are going to die down. This is the worst case scenario. Without a manifesto and a known motive, 
the speculation is just going to get worse and worse as to what drove the shooter to do it. But it also provides really fertile ground for more conspiracy theories to sort of accumulate and spread in the information ecosystem. The waters are very muddy right now. And even for extremism researchers, we're not entirely sure what to do with the limited information that we have. Hmm. I mean, we know that these conspiracy theories, they take root during and after tragedies like what we saw yesterday. But I understand that you're seeing something else this time. What's different? Well, also, if we look back at the conspiracy narrative that took hold after the Sandy Hook massacre, um, it really traced back largely to one person, uh, Alex Jones of the far-right media platform called InfoWars. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, it took a decade, but the families who were traumatized and hurt by those lies have finally won defamation suits against him, and he's now filing for bankruptcy. You know, this time around, it's different. We're not yet seeing any similar central figure pushing conspiracy theories around what happened in Texas. Instead, we're seeing these narratives pop up in a much more grassroots fashion. And extremism researchers like Aniano said, you know, they say that these are the real seeds that were planted by Jones 10 years ago. And they also reflect a much more widespread paranoia and distrust of federal government that's been taking hold on the right. That is NPR's Odette Youssef. Thank you, Odette. You're welcome. A drug used to treat HIV AIDS may have another unexpected use. It appears to reverse a form of memory loss, at least in mice. NPR's John Hamilton reports that the finding suggests a new approach to treating brain changes associated with aging or even disease. As a brain gets older, it can still form new memories, but it has trouble linking them together. Alcino Silva, a neuroscientist at the University of California, Los Angeles, explains the problem this way. You learn about something, but you can't remember where you heard it. You can't remember who told you about these incidents happen more and more often as we go from middle age into older age. Silva says scientists have known that for a long time. What we haven't known is how we do this, how the brain does this. Silva's lab was studying a molecule called CCR5 that helps the brain separate recent memories from older ones. Silva doubted that this same molecule could play a role in memory problems associated with aging. But we checked. (laughs) And voila! It turned out that levels of CCR5 increase with age and start to interfere with the process that helps us do things like link a name and a face. Then you no longer link memories after that because that molecule turns off memory mechanisms. Silva's lab showed that in mice, memory linking could be restored by blocking CCR5. But they wanted to do that in people as well as mice. The unbelievable lack of all of this is that there is an FDA-approved drug. A drug called Maraviroc. It blocks CCR5 to prevent HIV from entering immune cells. So we took this drug, we gave the middle-aged animals, And this drug gave you the same thing. It restored memory linking. The results, which appear in the journal Nature, are limited to mice. But they hold promise for aging people and even for stroke patients. Several years ago, Silva and Dr. S. Thomas Carmichael, the chair of neurology at UCLA, did a study that showed levels of CCR5 rise sharply after a stroke. Carmichael says in the short term, this activates systems that help brain cells survive. The problem is those systems stay active, and then they limit in weeks and months 
the ability of those brain cells to recover. Because the cells can't form the new links needed to carry out tasks like moving an arm or a leg. Mice who got Maraviroc didn't have this problem and recovered faster. And the team found that stroke patients with naturally low levels of CCR5 also recovered faster. Carmichael says the findings together suggest a drug like Maraviroc could help people with a wide range of brain problems. You might have an effect in Alzheimer's disease and stroke and Parkinson's and also in spinal cord injury. Carmichael is part of a team that is now studying Maraviroc in people who've had a stroke. John Hamilton, NPR News. Every day, our daily news podcast, Consider This, takes one big story in the news and helps make sense of it. Today, in nearly 10 years between elementary school massacres in Newtown, Connecticut, and Uvalde, Texas, what have lawmakers in Washington done to pass any sort of gun control? That's on this afternoon's episode of Consider This. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Ukraine's military has had to figure out creative tactics from low-tech to high-tech to take on Russia's military. Coming up on All Things Considered, many of the war hacks seem to be working. Celtics continued their playoff run in Miami tonight. Game 5 of the Eastern Conference Final starts up between the Celts and the Heat at 8.30 tonight. The best-of-seven series is tied at 2-2. Red Sox will meet up with the White Sox once again tonight for Game 2 of the three-game game set. Rich Hill takes the mound. 8-10 start time. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tapas 529 in Melrose, a neighborhood restaurant, a global vibe, private events welcome, Spanish and Mediterranean cuisine to sample and share. Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. At least 19 children and two teachers dead at the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, the second deadliest school shooting on record. Why are we willing to live with this carnage? Why do we keep letting this happen? I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. What will it take to end this uniquely American experience? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. The gunman who killed 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school in Texas had warned on social media just minutes before the attack that he was going to shoot up a school. Governor Greg Abbott says the shooter, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos, posted that he was going to shoot his grandmother, then posted that he had shot the woman, and finally that he was going to shoot an elementary school. He used an AR-15 in the attack Tuesday at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. 
that he bought legally when he turned 18. That has many people calling for stricter gun laws, including Republican Senator Pat Toomey. I think the thing that would have the best chance would be the thing that has gotten Republican support before, which is expanding background checks. Speaking to reporters on Capitol Hill, Abbott says Ramos had no criminal or mental health history. The Biden administration's nominee to oversee the enforcement of federal gun laws says he will keep politics out of his job. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports on the Senate confirmation hearing for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. Stephen Dettelbach spent seven years as the top federal prosecutor in Cleveland during the Obama administration. Now he's vying to become the first Senate-confirmed leader of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms in seven years. Dettelbach appeared before Congress only hours after an 18-year-old gunman killed 19 elementary school students and two adults in Texas. Dettelbach has won support from eight former ATF directors and more than 140 Justice Department officials, but he'll need the votes of every Democrat in the Senate to win confirmation. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 191 points, ending at 32,120. That's up six-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq up 170 points. That's up one and a half percent. The S&P 500 up 37 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some Massachusetts schools increased po- police presence today as a precaution after the Texas school shooting yesterday. Those districts include North Andover, Seekonk, and Belmont. In Belmont, some Someone made concerning social media posts last night about a school in town. Police say they located the person and addressed the issue. Meanwhile, Boston Public Schools says many of the district schools gave students time today to process the shooting in Texas. The district says many schools had mental health providers from the community on hand to support students. Religious leaders in the state are among those who are responding after the shooting. Reverend Mariama White-Hammond is the founding pastor of the New Roots AME Church in Dorchester. She tells WBR's Radio Boston she is angry and heartbroken. I also not just prayed for those who are suffering, but really asking God, how have we come to the point in this country where this is just normal? White Hammond says she believes most Americans want common sense changes to the country's gun laws. She is urging stronger community involvement to take care of the needs and development of children. Massachusetts is suing 13 companies that make firefighting foam that contains chemicals known as PFAS. Attorney General Maura Healy says she wants the companies to pay back the state for the money it spent to clean up the water contamination that the foam caused. Healy accuses the companies of trying to hide how dangerous their products are to health and the environment. One of the companies, 3M, says it acted responsibly and will defend its record. A trade association representing other companies has refused to comment. It's 434. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com, and AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals, aafcpa.com. Some fair weather clouds around today and tonight, dry and breezy, falling to the low 50s overnight. Tomorrow should be sunny once again, temperatures in the mid-60s again. Sunshine takes a break for Friday as clouds move in. Should be milder, though, moving to the upper 70s to about 80 degrees. Then cloudy and damp on Saturday, looking brighter on Sunday, at least from here. This is WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process, Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. We're going to return now to the story we've been following closely since yesterday, the school shooting in the small town of Uvalde, Texas. These shootings have become an unfortunately familiar story in the United States, and every new one strikes much too close to home for people who've been through them in the past. Four years ago, Jacqueline Corrin was a junior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. That's where a student opened fire on his classmates and teachers. 17 people were killed and another 17 were injured. Jacqueline Corrin went on to become an activist against gun violence, and she co-founded the March for Our Lives movement. Jacqueline is with us, and Jacqueline Corrin, welcome to All Things Considered, and thank you for talking about this. Thank you for having me. This is a really big question, but can you tell us what you've been thinking and feeling since you heard the news out of Uvalde yesterday? Oh, gosh. Uh, I am absolutely devastated for the children who will never get to live out their lives. You know, they are forever second, third, and fourth graders. I'm devastated for the parents and, and loved ones of those children and also the teachers who were killed. I'm devastated for the students and teachers of the school who were fortunate enough to live but will unfortunately have to endure an immense amount of trauma for the rest of their lives. I'm all too familiar with that. And I'm frustrated that we live under people in power who are selfish enough to prioritize money from the National Rifle Association instead of implementing laws that would actually prevent kids kids from being murdered. You talked about this being something that people in Uvalde now have to endure forever. And that's also the case with you. It's something you have to endure for the rest of your life because you went through it. Is there anything that comforted you or that you felt comforted your community after that happened that you feel like you could tell other people as they try to get through this latest school shooting? I mean, the only thing keeping me together was my classmates and my teachers. I felt immense comfort also by Columbine shooting survivors. You know, I I could see how they've healed over time. But ultimately, we always will be a little bit broken. And, And what I need people to understand is that the Uvalde community has been broken, and it's going to take a very long time to pick up the pieces, just as it has in Parkland. Jacqueline, as I mentioned, you and some of your classmates started the March for Our Lives movement to end gun violence. How did you decide to turn your experience into activism? I actually had been in the building where the shooting occurred just minutes before delivering Valentine's Day carnations. And I had an immense amount of survivor's guilt and still live with it, um, knowing that I was lucky enough to be alive and, and breathing. But ultimately, this cycle of mass gun violence, people are uh, interested in hearing about it for a couple days to a couple weeks after it happens, and then people forget. And, and that's why I knew I had to jump in immediately in my advocacy. Not a lot has been done on a federal level, but hopefully this shooting in Uvalde is the change. Because not a lot has happened on the federal level, do you feel like you're developing any feeling of futility? Or how do you keep your energy to keep fighting for this when you don't see 
the ideal changes you want to see? Well, I remain motivated by a lot of the changes that have happened on state levels um, in places like Massachusetts, where I, I go to college. Uh, it has some of the strongest gun laws in the country. And in 2020, Massachusetts had the second lowest gun death rate in the U.S. And so obviously there's a correlation. And what also keeps me motivated is I know that change can happen and it's just a matter of time. And each and every one of us has a duty to go to the polls this November for the midterm elections and vote out people who have no interest in changing our gun laws and vote in people who actually care about preventing the deaths of young people. Jacqueline Corrin is a former student at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, and co-founder of the March for Our Lives movement. Jacqueline, thank you. Thank you. To fight against Russia's larger military, Ukraine has had to be creative, from low-tech to high-tech. You could call them war hacks, and many seem to be working. NPR's Greg Myrie has this story from Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. There are two things you need to know about military trenches. First, you'll never find a soldier who likes to dig one. Second, the deeper they are, the safer they are. Digging a hole is not fun. American Stefan Korshak knows the Ukrainian military well. He's been living in Ukraine for 25 years and covers the war for the Kyiv Post. Their army has developed the discipline to make the soldiers dig holes the moment they stop, wherever they are, any time that they could potentially be hit by Russian artillery, and that saves lives. When Russia invaded Ukraine back in 2014, Ukraine's army was simply outmatched. By all accounts, it has improved dramatically. Retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Ben Hodges saw this firsthand. He became the commander of the U.S. Army in Europe shortly after that first Russian incursion. As American troops helped train the Ukrainians, he was immediately struck by their tech savvy when the U.S. provided radar equipment that detected incoming Russian artillery fire. I quickly discovered that radar is better than I realized. The Ukrainians took it and were able to use it in ways that I did not know were possible. And it's not just the technical part, but it's also the tactical, how they employed it. He continued to be impressed by Ukrainian ingenuity in the years that followed. Then I saw where they were creating their own drones with a combination of military and off-the-shelf stuff. In the current fighting, Ukrainian artillery units are using a network of computer tablets on the battlefield. This allows them to better coordinate their attacks on the Russians. And the previously outgunned Ukrainians now have huge howitzers recently delivered by the U.S. I'm not surprised that they are doing very well getting new equipment and how quickly they're able to learn to use it. In the air, Russia has far more fighter jets, which are a generation more advanced than the aging Soviet-era planes the Ukrainians are flying. Ukraine also has limited air defenses on the ground. Russia was expected to destroy the Ukrainian Air Force within days. Instead, Ukraine says it's now shot down 200 Russian aircraft. And as a result, Russian pilots are often firing their missiles long distance from the skies over Russia rather than entering Ukrainian airspace. Ukraine's Air Force spokesman is Lieutenant Colonel Yuri Ignat. Our planes can't stand up technologically. It's obvious what the results of those dogfights would be, so we have to use what we have with maximal effectiveness. This means using shoulder-held Stinger missiles to hit low-flying Russian helicopters and surface-to-air missiles to bring down high-flying jets. 
Russia was also expected to dominate the information war, yet Ukraine has often been a step ahead. It cut off Russian-based cell phones that the Russians brought into the country. You don't just switch off the roaming from a country, another country overnight. Cathal McDave is an expert on mobile phone security, based in Ireland. He's closely monitoring the war. You know, there's planning, a lot of planning, huge amount of planning goes in beforehand. When the Russians started stealing Ukrainian cell phones, Ukrainian citizens reported the thefts. This allowed the Ukrainian officials to intercept calls the Russians made on those stolen phones. The Ukrainians, McDade says, have learned many tricks from the Russians. I saw a great comment. You said like an army marches on its stomach and somebody responded to a tweet saying, oh, an army now seems to march on its mobile networks. And its ingenuity. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kiev. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Former President Trump wasn't on the ballot in yesterday's primaries, but he still lost. Two of the candidates he endorsed in Georgia both got beaten badly, and that is calling into question his influence in Republican politics. For more on that and some of the other primaries, we're joined now by NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hi, Domenico. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being with us. So starting with Georgia, what races are we talking about here when we say Trump lost badly? Well, I'm looking at the governor's race and secretary of state's race uh, in particular there. Uh, You'd be hard pressed to find two Republican incumbents who Trump wanted out of office more than incumbent Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Mm -hmm. Both won by huge margins, though, in their primaries last night against handpicked Trump recruited challengers who campaigned on his election lies. Here's Raffensperger declaring victory last night. My thinking was the vast majority of Jordans are looking for honest people for elected office. Someone who would do their job, follow the law, and look out for them regardless of the personal cost to do so. And there certainly was a lot of political cost for him, uh, personal cost. Trump did have some wins last night. Uh, Herschel Walker, the former NFL star who he recruited for the Senate, easily won his primary. His former press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas, won her primary to be governor there. Uh, And when it comes to Walker's race, though, it's important to point out it was an open contest, no incumbent. That really makes a difference. This is so interesting. Do we know why Trump's influence was so weak in Georgia? Lots of speculation on that, uh, but here's a few uh, informed theories, okay? Uh, First, speaking of the power of incumbency, that's one reason. You know, people who are already in office have established records, established brands to run on. Kemp, for example, touted his conservative measures that he'd signed into law, like that voting overhaul, which was really controversial nationally, and his past record of defeating Democrat Stacey Abrams, who's going to be the nominee again this time. He beat her in 2018 narrowly. Uh, So electability here may have played uh, some role in voters' minds, too. Second, what we saw in Georgia that's been different than in lots of other states was a sustained push by Republicans against Trump, these officials. Candidates here weren't reacting to Trump, letting him dictate the terms. Top Republicans instead, you know, were lining up against Trump lies, Trump's lies in lots of different ways. You know, Kemp largely ignored Trump. Uh, If you look at Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, when he went right after Trump, he's created an advocacy group called GOP 2.0. Duncan, of course, easier for him to do that because he's not running for re-election. And Trump's uh, pick for lieutenant governor actually did pretty well and is well ahead at this point. But lastly, you know, Trump has seen a dip 
relationship among Republican voters and whether they have strong feelings for him. Uh, his, quote, very favorable ratings have dropped 20 points among Republicans since the eve of the 2020 election. That just shows the farther you get away from power, the harder it is to retain a grip on the base. You know, Trump, though, of course, can't be counted out. Still the biggest player in Republican politics and the front runner for the 2024 nomination if he wants it. Sure. Okay. Well, apart from Georgia, three other states held primaries. Any results there that stood out to you? Yeah, let's look at Texas. Democratic primary in the 28th Congressional District remains too close to call. Real race between uh, progressive uh, Jessica Cisneros and Henry Cuellar, who's mm -hmm. the incumbent Democrat there. Progressives upset the party leader, leaders backed Cuellar, even though he's the only Democrat in Congress against abortion rights. And we All may right. have seen the end of the Bush political dynasty in Texas, George P. Bush. Uh, the f son of former Florida Governor Jeb Bush lost, was trounced in his bid for attorney general last night. That is NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you, Domenico. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come, soccer star Megan Rapino talks about the U.S. women's national team finally being granted pay equal to what the men's team makes. That story is still to come. Game five for the Celtics and Miami Heat tonight in the Eastern Conference Finals back down in Miami. The best of seven series is tied at 2-2. And the Sox winning streak is now six games after last night's blowout over the White Sox in Chicago. Game two tonight is set for Rich Hill to be on the mound. 8-10 start time. It's 4:48. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Globe Live. Returning to the Paramount stage for two nights of nonfiction storytelling from Boston Globe's journalists and celebrating the Globe's 150th anniversary with the writers, storytellers, and personalities covering and convening the Boston community, June 11th and 12th. Learn more at globe.com slash globe live. The WBUR Gala Auction is live. Go behind the scenes at Zoo New England. Bid now at wbur.org slash gala. Should have clear skies tonight, breezy and cool, about 53 for a low. Then for tomorrow, a lot like today, sunny with highs up about 67. It is in the Boston area right now, 70 degrees. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. And New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill. Enjoy a new nature-inspired exhibit, spring blooms, and a new garden for children called The Ramble. NEBG.org. Change can be hard. We kind of joked, well, there goes the neighborhood, you know, the gentrification. It's heartbreaking, really. I mean, there, there are people that thought that they were going to spend the rest of their lives right here. I'm Kyle Rizdal when wildfire changes everything. We'll tell you that story next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 630 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. The U.S. women's national soccer team may have scored its biggest win yet. Last week, collective bargaining agreements were reached that guarantee equal pay for the men's and women's teams through 2028. One of the most vocal advocates for this sea change is soccer star and 2019 co-captain Megan Rapino. I've been disrespected and dismissed because I am a woman. 
And I've been told that I don't deserve any more than less because I am a woman. Rapino sat down with NPR's host of The Limits, Jay Williams, and he joins us today to talk about their conversation. Hi, Jay. How are you? I'm good. Jay, when you spoke with Megan Rapino, how did she describe the moment she first heard the news? Sasha, she said it felt so real. She said, quote unquote, it literally was pushing a boulder up a mountain. She's incredibly proud of her teammates and the collective effort, but she also had some harsher things to say about U.S. soccer as a whole. Yeah, you can congratulate us, but U.S. soccer gets no congratulations. They've been trying to, like, wrap themselves around the win, and I'm like, you do realize that equal pay achieving it means that you weren't, so you know, you're not going to get any pats on the back for this. Hmm, so she's tough on them. Jay, remind us the hurdles the women's soccer team faced to get here. Sure. This lawsuit for the women's team filed started back in 2016 and took six years to reach a settlement back in February. Keep in mind that this is a team that won the World Cup in 2015 and 2019 and has dominated the Olympics and taken home the gold twice, which is absolutely amazing. Then in 2019, they won in France. The stadium erupted into a deafening cheer of equal pay. So they had global support for this, and it still took a few more years to get here. And this is a big accomplishment for them. But what work still needs to be done? One of the things I asked her, and here is something, a quote from ESPN, the entire bonus pool for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar will be $400 million, while the bonuses for the women's tournament in Australia in 2023 will be $60 million. Put another way, in the previous World Cup cycle, the last place men's team won more prize money than the first place women's team, end oh. quote. So, Sasha, a lot of detractors will say that, that hey, even though the men's team ends up uh, last generating the most prize money than the most successful women's team, but she put it in terms of the investment being made early on in male athletes versus female athletes and the men's team versus the women's team. Check this out. The money part also allows you freedom and like freedom to speak out, freedom to make bold choices, freedom to maybe go against your federation or freedom to, you know, take a bold stance. It just gives you that autonomy to do things that can push your sport. That's interesting. Money is power in that way. Jay, because you are a former NBA player and a host on ESPN, you have seen a fair amount of collective bargaining agreements, both as an athlete and as a commentator. Would you set the stage for us for what this may mean for professional sports? I think this sets a different tone. What's happened with U.S. women's soccer as it relates to equal pay is a benchmark for what I think will be happening in all of sports as race because it creates a dynamic in which the men's and the women's team want to partner. So this is a monumental opportunity for us collectively as a team. You know, we talk a lot about team sports. Are we addressing this as a team sport as it relates to humanity? And I think that's what we're witnessing in real time. That's NPR's host of The Limits, Jay Williams. Jay, thank you. Thank you, Sasha. The new episode of The Limits with the full Megan Rapino conversation airs Tuesday, May 31st. Although mass shootings have become more common, the loss of 19 children gunned down at school is very hard to understand. Around the country, as parents and caregivers process their own emotions, many might wonder how best to talk to their children about it. Well, NPR's Allison Aubrey joins us now with some thoughts. Hi, Allison. Hi there, Elsa. I mean, the details of what happened 
are so horrific. I can't imagine some parents may not want to say anything to their children about it at all. What, what do you think? What is the right way to handle a tragedy like this? Well, saying nothing is not the best approach, especially if your kids have already talked to classmates about it, which is probably the case with most school-aged children. Mm -hmm. And to determine how much information to provide, you really want to take your cues from your kids. A good first step is to simply ask them what they've heard, what they're feeling. Uh, this is David Schoenfeld's advice. He's a pediatrician who directs the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement. Children's questions may be very different than adults' questions. And before we can offer reassurance or help them with what's bothering them, we have to understand what their actual concerns are. So that's the first step. Start the conversation and then listen. Uh, some common questions that come up are, why did this happen? Could it have been prevented? And could it happen at my school? I mean, my God, those are really tough questions. Mm. What, what's the best way to answer questions like that? Well, you know, Elsa, I'd like to be able to tell my own 11-year-old daughter, hey, don't worry, this could never happen here. But, of course, with 27 school shootings and more than 200 mass shootings this year alone across the country, it could happen here. I mean, and that makes me anxious. I'm sick to my stomach when I think about the fact that 19 children went to school yesterday and never came home. Uh, so, you know, as parents, we have to take a moment to process our own emotions before we can try to respond thoughtfully to our children. And when we do, we can look to our schools for help. Uh, the principal at a local middle school here sent an email to parents explaining that faculty and staff would greet the children this morning to help them feel safe. They want children to maintain their routines, but they knew kids would have questions. Some may need support if they're upset or anxious. Here's Dr. Dr. Schoenfeld again. And a lot of people say to me, you know, this is just the new normal. And my reaction to them is there's nothing normal about this. Children should not shoot and kill other children, but it is our current reality. And so we have to at least, until we can change this, help kids learn to cope with the distress that they feel when they recognize inherent dangers that are part of the world. Now, kids respond differently to this distress. Schoenfeld's organization has a very helpful guide for parents with a bunch of tips to work through this. Some kids may be sad. Some might not sleep well as they process the news. Others may be angry. Yeah. Well, how can we help kids process that anger? You know, it's natural to be angry. It's natural to want to blame. But sadly, if kids direct their anger, say, at an individual who acts in hatred, this doesn't take away grief or solve the problem. Anger begets anger. So parents can help kids redirect their anger. Think about what happened in Parkland after the 2018 mass shooting. We saw that in Parkland, that youths were effective activists at bringing some attention to these issues. It did not solve the problem, but it did make a difference. And so I think, yes, kids can be part of the solution, but the adults have to be a big part of the solution too. So bottom line, have conversations with your children. Ask them what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Yeah. That is a very good place to start. That is NPR's Allison Aubrey. Thank you, Allison. Thank you. This is All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Angie, 
formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. Should stay lovely through the evening with clear skies tonight, falling to the low 50s. Then tomorrow, back up around the mid to upper 60s, plenty of sunshine. The end of the week should turn cloudy with gray skies Friday. Some showers likely on Saturday. We'll see highs in the 70s both days. Then the sunshine should return on Sunday. The city of Cambridge is warning residents to expect street closures tomorrow through Sunday in and around Harvard and Kendall Squares. That's because of events that include commencements at Harvard and MIT. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The deadly school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, has led Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut to plead with his Republican colleagues to pass gun control legislation. Maybe I'm a fool for being the eternal optimist, but uh, I'm just going to stay at it for these next uh, few days, the next week. It's Wednesday, May 25th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Murphy's been trying to pass gun control laws since the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in his state a decade ago. Lawmakers in Congress are trying to find out what caused the nationwide baby formula shortage. How does that happen? How can that possibly happen? Two House subcommittees are holding hearings on the crisis. And the Biden administration came to office promising to revive a nuclear deal with Iran. The top negotiator is briefing Congress on the stalemate. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says the gunman who killed 19 children and two adults yesterday in Uvalde, Texas, warned on social media minutes before the attack he intended to shoot up a school. Abbott saying, however, at this point there is no indication the 18-year-old gunman, Salvador Ramos, had any history of criminal or mental illness. There has been no criminal history identified yet. He may have had a juvenile record, but that is yet to be determined. There was no known mental health history of the gunman. He used one weapon, which was an AR-15, using 223 rounds. Meanwhile, as Abbott was speaking, he was interrupted by Democratic gubernatorial candidate Beto O'Rourke, who blamed the Republican governor for doing nothing to prevent gun violence. Speaking after the event, O'Rourke said the time for action is now. They want us to do something right now. I want us to do something right now. We can do something right now. But if we continue to accept this, then it is on us. It's not just the governor's fault. It it is on us. Abbott is among those scheduled to speak at this weekend's annual National Rifle Association Convention, which is being held in Houston. Meanwhile, the mass school shooting in Texas renewing the push for stricter gun laws in the U.S. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Senate Democrats are pleading with their Republican colleagues to find a path forward that would make these types of events less likely. Speaking on the Senate floor, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer made an emotional plea to his Republican colleagues to reach a bipartisan agreement that would strengthen the nation's gun laws. Please, 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 damn it, 
Put yourself in the shoes of these parents for once. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he's horrified and heartbroken over the attack. It's literally sickening, sickening to consider the innocent young lives that were stolen by this pointless brutality. Senator Schumer says he plans to bring up legislation that would expand criminal background checks for potential gun buyers. The measures passed the House in 2019 but were blocked by Republicans in the Senate. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. All of those taking part in the Federal Reserve's policy session earlier this month agreed that a half a point increase in interest rates was needed to combat escalating inflation pressures. That's according to newly released minutes from the meeting. This month's 50 basis point increase in the Fed's benchmark overnight rate was the largest rate hike of its kind in 20 years, with additional similar-sized rate increases likely at the Fed's next meetings in June and July. Stocks, meanwhile, moved higher on Wall Street despite the Fed minutes indicating more interest rate hikes are likely on the way. Tech shares rebounding with the Nasdaq up more than 1.5%. The Dow is up 191 points today. The S&P 500 closed up 37 points. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston leaders are responding to the shooting at the elementary school in Texas yesterday that left 19 children and two teachers dead. Boston Superintendent of Schools Brenda Caselia says young people will not be able to learn if they're afraid of what might happen in school. She says lawmakers need to craft legislation and programs to address the problem. Get guns off our streets and out of the hands of those who would do harm. Let's give our children back their childhoods and let's protect them from this senseless violence. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says Boston's not immune to the violence. She says the city must work to prevent it by building welcoming and healthy communities. Boston's rolling out a plan to keep residents safe from violence this summer. The plan includes a program where community leaders will serve as ambassadors to connect people to services. School and police officials will increase the number of visits to students' homes to address concerning behavior, and the city will expand the number of summer jobs available to young people. Police officers were justified when they shot and killed a Chelsea man during a gunfight in the year 2017. That's the conclusion of an investigation into the death of Kelly Pastrana by the Suffolk County DA's, DA's office. Interim DA Kevin Hayden says officers will not face criminal charges. He says police acted in self-defense and in defense of others during the incident that began with a domestic assault. Governor Charlie Baker's in Tennessee today for a meeting of the Republican Governors Association. The GOP group says its primary objective is to elect and re-elect Republican governors. Baker is not running for re-election. He's due back in the state tomorrow morning. And tickets for the new Amtrak route between Pittsfield and New York City are now available. They went on sale today. Service on the Berkshire Flyer begins in July. It will run weekends through the summertime. Again, that's uh, the new Amtrak route between Pittsfield and New York City. In the forecast, clear skies tonight, falling to the low 50s. Then tomorrow, back up around the mid to upper 60s. Lots of sunshine tomorrow again. 70 degrees now in Boston at 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, focused on providing holistic financial planning from retirement and investments to taxes and estate planning in the client's best interest. Let's make a plan.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. 
It has been more than 24 hours since a gunman walked into a fourth-grade classroom, opened fire, and killed students and teachers. Hours that saw terrified parents sitting in a parking lot in Uvalde, Texas, waiting for news of their children while they were swabbed for DNA. And hours in which victims, politicians, and so many others asked why these mass shootings happen again and again and again. The times and locations are different, but all too familiar scenes have played out all across the country, including in December 2012, when a gunman killed 20 children and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. Senator Chris Murphy represents the parents, teachers, and community that includes Sandy Hook. And in the decade since that terrible day, he has been trying to pass gun control legislation. He spoke about the shooting and the failure of that legislation on the Senate floor yesterday. But I'm here on this floor to beg, to literally get down on my hands and knees and beg my colleagues. Find a path forward here. Work with us to find a way to pass laws that make this less likely. Senator Murphy joins us now. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. So as someone who was so close to what happened at Sandy Hook, what what are these moments now, like what happened yesterday, what are they like for you when they happen? Well, I mean, the first thing I think about is those families in Sandy Hook who relive their nightmare every time that one of these mass shootings happens, in particular shooting in a school. Um, and having been there um, at, at the emergency uh, location site uh, at Sandy Hook that day, I know what last night looked like. I know how grisly that is, the process of identifying these bodies. These kids don't have IDs on them, and so it's their parents who have to identify their children. I also know what an AR-15 does to the bodies of these children. Um, Many of them were probably not recognizable, and I know this is so hard to hear. It's hard for me to say, but this country has to sort of come to grips with the reality of what these mass shootings look like. It was Emmett Till's open casket that changed the civil rights debate. And I hope that we don't have to show Americans what these kids' bodies look like shot by semi-automatic weapons in order to change public opinion here. But I can't imagine what those families are going through. And the Sandy Hook families are going through a lot today as well. Yeah. Well, when it comes to coming to grips with reality, I covered the efforts to pass gun control legislation back in 2013, shortly after Sandy Hook. And I remember there there was a palpable feeling inside the Capitol among Democrats that if there was ever a time when new gun control bills would get passed, it would be at that moment after the murder of 20 young children. That hope was so strong when I talked to you and your Democratic colleagues back then, and yet the efforts failed. So let me ask you, how do you even meaningfully revive the gun control conversation inside the Senate after that? I think I came to understand that there are very few epiphanies. There are very few moments where a right turn happens in American politics. It's really about political power. How much do you have? How much does the other side have? And in 2013, you know, the modern anti-gun violence movement didn't exist. All these groups that we think about today, from um, March for Our Lives to Gabby Gifford's group, Moms Demand Action, they didn't exist. But the gun lobby did, the NRA did, and they just were more powerful than we were in 2013. So what we've been doing for the last 10 years is building up our own power. We're um, a significant political organization. The NRA is weaker today than they were. And maybe 
that balance of power, political power today, much more even than it was in 2013, will allow us to get something done. Um, that's my task. Do you over really the next believe that? Do you really? Uh, be- what are your conversations like now with your colleagues who don't support gun control legislation? What are they saying to you right now? Well, you know, they trot out all the same tropes, you know, first, that this is a mental illness problem, not a gun problem. Second, that, you know, we can solve this by putting more weapons in our schools. Uh, So they come up with all sorts of other things that we should be working on. And I admit, (laughs) there's a really narrow path to getting 60 votes in the Senate right now. Um, And maybe I'm a fool for being the eternal optimist, but uh, I'm just going to stay at it for these next uh, few days, the next week. So you do think that you will be able to garner some support from the other side in the next few weeks? You really think that something will change? So as we're talking, we're trying to figure out a process by which over the next week, Republicans and Democrats, a group of us, can sit down and try to hammer out a compromise. I will tell you, I think the chances are you know, well less than 50-50 that we will find that compromise because there are probably four or five Republicans who would fairly easily support some common sense measures, tougher to find the next five that would get you to 60. But the truth of the matter is, if there were more Democrats here and less Republicans, we would be able to pass this legislation if voters went to the polls and decided not to keep reelecting people who don't support universal background checks. We could solve this issue pretty easily. So in the end, this is Congress's responsibility, but it is also the voters' responsibility. Well, Senator, if you could speak directly to the families in Uvalde right now, what would you like to say to them? That this is going to be a hard, awful, difficult road and that there's a lot of people there to support you. Unfortunately, there's a community of victims from Sandy Hook to Parkland uh, to Charleston who can help you um, understand how they manage this grief. But I also want them to know that there are people here in Washington who are not going to give up, who are going to try to honor the memory of these kids with action to try to make sure that no family has to go through what they've gone through. I mean, listen, I have no idea really what to tell these parents. I have no idea. I have a feeling there's zero words that brings comfort to a mom or a dad who have lost their child. But as you know, one of the few parents of young school-aged children in the United States Senate, I feel an obligation to stand up for those families and those kids. And I hope that over time, they may draw some small comfort from the fact that there are some people here trying to stop this from happening. That is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Thank you very much for being with us again. Thank you. Today is the second anniversary of the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. President Biden marked the date by signing an executive order meant to change how police use force. NPR's Martin Casty covers law enforcement and joins us now. Hi, Martin. Hi, Sasha. How significant is the White House saying this order is? Well, uh, President Biden pointed to the presence uh, at this signing of family members of George Floyd and also Breonna Taylor. That was the woman who was shot to death during a fast entry police raid of her apartment in Louisville back in 2020. And for him, uh, the outcry over those deaths is what led to this executive order. It's a measure of what we can do together to heal the very soul of this nation, to address profound fear and trauma, exhaustion, particularly black Americans have experienced for generations, and to channel that private pain and public outrage into a rare mark of progress for years to come. But at the same time, the president lamented that Congress has failed to pass more substantial police reform law, something he says he'd still like to see. What does this executive order actually change in American policing? 
Well, the most direct effect here is on federal law enforcement. That's Border Patrol, FBI, that sort of uh, agency. Uh, the officers in those agencies will now be told to use force, quote, only when no reasonably effective, safe, and feasible alternative appears to exist. They'll also be told that when it comes to deadly force, that's authorized only when necessary. Uh, the executive order gets specific about certain kinds of force. It limits the use of neck restraints, for instance. That Those became notorious after a neck hold was blamed for the death of Eric Garner in 2014. And no-knock raids also will be more limited, again, for federal uh, officers. Uh, that was after the outcry over the police raid that killed Breonna Taylor. Martin, you're saying this applies to federal officers, but didn't the cases that launched the protest movement involve local police? Yeah, but the president can't order changes to local police. Uh, so what this does is it tries to encourage local police departments to follow the federal example. Uh, one way they might do that would be to make standards, these federal standards, a condition of some federal grants. Another thing it might do is, uh, another, another thing it will do is set up a new federal database to keep track of misconduct by police officers, though again, the only ones required to use that database would be the federal law enforcement agencies. It'll be voluntary for local police departments. And we have seen with other federal data collecting initiatives that local police can be slow to cooperate with those data collection efforts. Uh, we've seen that, for instance, with a new effort to collect data about police use of force. Um, but, you know, this order sticks with that encouragement tact rather than forcing change, and police organizations do prefer that. The National Executive Director of the Fraternal Order of Police, Jim Pascoe, uh, talked about the, this new executive order with our colleague Tamara Keith yesterday. We found common ground where it didn't seem likely that any could be found. And that said, you know, I don't think either side is 100% happy with it. You know, us or the civil rights community. But I think it's a good foundation, a good framework for uh, improving the relationship between police and the communities they serve. He just mentioned the civil rights community, the reformers, basically. Are they on board with this? Well, um, they certainly support these changes, but I do think there is some sense of disappointment. Uh, I talked to Walter Katz about this. He's a former public defender who's had a lot of experience working on police reform at the city level. I think this is a relatively small step. There was great promise in 2020 and 2021, at least in the beginning. And I think since then, uh, some of the energy dissipated. So I think the Biden administration has taken a step forward within the power that it has. But Katz does add that he sees potential in the fact that at least we'll have some clear national standards now for higher standards of use of force, which may smooth the path for police departments that want to raise the bar for use of force and for legislators who want to put those things into state law. Um, that's something that's already been happening in several states in the last couple of years. And the hope here is that federal norms may accelerate that process on the state level. That's NPR's Martin Casty. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the father of a child who died in the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012 in Connecticut talks about what the Uvalde families need right now. Checking business news, stocks were on an upswing today. The Dow rose more than a half percent, 192 points, to finish the day at 32,120. S&P picked up about a full percent to close at 39.79, and the Nasdaq pulled in more than one and a half percent to close at 11,435. 
It's 518. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, believing that everyone benefits when we come together to build more equitable communities. The Boston Foundation is embracing its role as a civic leader to seize this moment. TBF is joining with its many partners to build a greater Boston that works for everyone. Learn more at tbf.org slash civic leadership. Workers at Boston-based food and cooking brand America's Test Kitchen are trying to unionize. Organizers say they're asking management to voluntarily recognize the union. They say they want to negotiate wage increases to keep up with the rising cost of living. America's Test Kitchen officials say the company offers strong compensation and benefits. They say they will bargain in good faith if workers elect to join the union. Forecast is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet, presenting Swan Lake, an iconic and beloved ballet, live May 26th through June 5th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. Clear skies tonight, breezy and cool, about 53 for a low. If you like today, you'll like tomorrow. Sunny again, up around 67. 70 degrees now in Boston. Win a diamond necklace or a cooking class in the WBUR Gala auction. Bid now at WBUR.org gala. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at Fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. The Biden administration's point person on Iran says the only real solution to the nuclear issue is diplomacy. But after a year of talks, it's not clear that the U.S. and Iran will get back to the deal that the Trump administration left. All the while, Iran is making advances to its nuclear program, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. U.S. Envoy Robert Malley says a return to the 2015 nuclear deal is tenuous at best. But he says the administration believes it is worth it. And he says European partners want the U.S. to make the effort. They tell us, and I'm sure that if you had them here, they would tell you, the last thing they want, particularly today when we're dealing with a crisis in Ukraine, is have a nuclear crisis in the Persian Gulf. But Mali faced a lot of skepticism from both sides of the aisle in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Republican Jim Risch points out that the Biden administration came to office raising hopes for a, quote, longer and stronger deal with Iran. That train has left the station a long time ago. It isn't longer and it isn't stronger and it doesn't even exist. Uh, in fact, what we're hearing about is it will be shorter and weaker if indeed you do wind up getting into an agreement, which... Uh, uh, I, for one, certainly hope that you don't. The problem is, Mali says, without a deal, Iran faces no constraints to its nuclear program. Iran has been accumulating sufficient enriched uranium and made sufficient technological advances to leave the breakout time as short as a matter of weeks, which means Iran could potentially produce enough fuel for a bomb before we can know it, let alone stop it. 
Chairman Bob Menendez, a Democrat who opposed the nuclear deal, said the U.S. should be focused on stepping up sanctions and cracking down on Iranian oil sales to China, rather than lamenting the Trump administration's decision to leave the deal. He's raising doubts that the 2015 agreement can be revived. Why is it that we uh, are still keeping the door open, even though uh, the Secretary of State said that there wasn't much uh, benefit anymore? What is your plan B? Mali says all options are on the table, but a military strike would only slow down Iran's nuclear program, not stop it. And he says diplomacy is the only way to resolve this. Another Democrat, Tim Kaine, encouraged him to stay on course. There are some on this committee who are basically telling you stop dialogue right now. Don't accept that advice. Do your best, and then if you find a product that you think is better than what's going on right now, bring it to Congress and let Congress own it. Let Congress own whether the U.S. is a diplomatic nation or whether we reject diplomacy. The State Department's Iran envoy is promising to submit any deal to Congress for review, and he says the U.S. will reject Iranian demands that go beyond the deal. Iran wants the U.S. to lift sanctions on the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Today, the U.S. imposed new sanctions to crack down on an oil smuggling network linked to the IRGC. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Yesterday at the Civic Center in Uvalde, Texas, parents of children who attended Robb Elementary School were being asked for DNA samples. The genetic tests could potentially match with their children and identify victims of yesterday's school shooting that killed 19 children and two adults. Some parents who had not yet been united with their children waited throughout the night for DNA match results. Our next guest lost his six-year-old son, Ben, during the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School almost 10 years ago. David Wheeler joins us again. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with us again. Of course, Elsa. Thank you. So if I may ask, when you first heard this news yesterday, what were the first thoughts that ran through your mind? It just took my legs out from underneath me, of course. Um, there's been a lot of this kind of news in uh, lately, and uh, this particular time that it was in elementary school and that it was young kids was a particularly hard hit. And my first thoughts, of course, went to what those families have ahead of them, mm-hmm. uh, where they might have been at that moment and where they are doubtless going to be in the hours and days ahead. Yeah. What words do you have for those parents in Uvalde who are just now confronting the awful truth that they have lost their children? What would you say to them? What did you need to hear 10 years ago? Well, it's it's important to recognize that grief is different for every individual. You cannot apply a one-size-fits-all approach to a person who is mourning uh, the loss of a child, especially in a violent and traumatic way such as this. But it's important for those parents to know that no matter how they feel right now, there is a way through and that there are people around them ready and willing and able to help them. Well, can you talk a little bit about how you and your family processed and worked through your own grief? Because, because as you say, everyone responds to grief differently. What was that process like? 
for you? Well, it's it's an ongoing process, frankly. It still happens every day, and the events of, of yesterday are a part of our process now. And every time this news comes in, it's part of our process now, just as it will be for them. Uh, it never ends, and it never goes away. Because when you're trying to wrap your head around the loss of your child, when you're trying to get to the point where you can understand that you now live in a world without that person who brought so much joy and life and noise into your life, in your house, <laughs> that's that's an ongoing process. It's not something that you can just accept and 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 handle right away. And that's not just a conscious thing. That happens at, an, at a subconscious level all day, every day. And it's exhausting. This kind of grief is exhausting. I'm sure that many people out there who are listening are wondering how to help parents in Uvalde at this moment. What is the best way to do that in your experience? What do, what do those parents likely need most now? And, and what will they need going forward? Well, if the people are nearby, if we're talking about people who are in the area and can help, even friends and family members, the first thing you can do is just show up. Just be there. Don't make any demands. Don't even ask what you can do. Just be there and open your eyes and open your ears and pay attention to what people may clue you into what they need and, and when they need it. And if you're not nearby and you're moved to try to help with a donation of some kind, mm. if your desire is to help the families directly, and believe me, they are going to need help. They are going to need help with every practical aspect of their lives. And if you want to help in that way, pay attention and find organizations that are committed to helping the families directly. It's also fine to contribute to support a cause if that's what you want to do. But you've got to understand the difference between the two. And that's the difference between reflexive and reflective giving. Think about what you're doing. Think about why you're doing it. And think about who is going to benefit from your actions. That is David Wheeler. He is the father to the late Ben Wheeler, who died 10 years ago in the school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Should have clear skies tonight, falling to the low 50s. Tomorrow, back up around the mid to upper 60s with lots of sunshine. Game five for the Celtics and Miami Heat tonight in the Eastern Conference Finals. Back down in Miami. The best of seven series is tied at 2-2. The team that wins tonight will be one a game away from the NBA Finals. And Rich Hill does the pitching honors tonight as the Red Sox take on the White in Chicago. Game two of the three-game series starts at 810. This is 90.9 WBUR, 70 degrees still in the Boston area. The time is 530 and news headlines are next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington's Common Ground Revisited. The Pulitzer Prize-winning classic comes to theatrical life. Starts Friday, huntingtontheater.org. And the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Ride the water shuttle to see art on both sides of the harbor. Opens May 26th. Tickets at ICABoston.org.
How do we make sense of the vast amounts of data that's out there in order to benefit people who really need it? That's where the promise of AI really comes in. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Smarter health, artificial intelligence, and the future of American healthcare. A special series from On Point. Starts Friday at 10 a.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Funded in part by Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. As the community of Uvalde in Texas mourns the loss of at least 19 children and two adults at a shooting at an elementary school yesterday, President Biden says he will visit the area soon. Jill and I will be traveling to Texas in the coming days to meet with the families and let them know we have a sense, just a sense of their pain, and hopefully bring some little comfort to the community in shock in grief and in trauma. Speaking there from the White House, the investigation into a motive continues. Governor Greg Abbott says the 18-year-old gunman had warned in online messages that he was going to shoot up an elementary school. Abbott says the gunman used an AR-15-style semi-automatic rifle but had no criminal history. The children who died were all in the same class, and the attack happened just two days before summer break was to have begun. Meanwhile, officials in Texas say it was a U.S. Border Patrol agent who shot and killed that gunman. NPR's Joel Rose reports dozens of Border Patrol agents responded to the mass shooting. The Border Patrol has a big presence in Uvalde, which is about 60 miles from the U.S.-Mexico border. Some agents have children at Robb Elementary School, according to Jason Owens, a top regional official with the Border Patrol. So the shooting hit close to home. We had folks that came from off-duty. We had folks that were in the field and responded. So a multitude, some 80 in total, Border Patrol agents responded. Officials say a Border Patrol tactical team was able to force its way into the classroom where the shooter was barricaded. The Border Patrol has not released the name of the agent who killed the shooter. Joel Rose, NPR News. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 191 points. That's up six-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq up one and a half percent. That's a jump of 170 points. The S&P 500 up 37 points. That's up nearly one percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. Supreme Court is expected to rule in the coming weeks on a case that could affect gun laws in Massachusetts. A high court will decide whether states can restrict people from carrying guns in certain public spaces. Massachusetts has a law that allows police chiefs to limit where a licensed gun owner can bring their weapon. In oral arguments, several justices indicated laws like that may violate Second Amendment rights. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey says regulations are critical to protecting public safety. The shooting at a Texas elementary school that left to more than 20 people dead is sparking outrage from Healey. Most of the victims were children. Healey is the top law enforcement officer in the state and calls the latest mass shooting a failure of Congress. I am heartbroken and sickened by yet another mass shooting like this. The incidents we've seen continue to mount. And it's truly unbelievable what is happening in our country and the failure of leaders to act. Healy is calling on everyone to demand Congress pass what she calls common sense reforms to close loopholes and impose background checks. More Healy is also running for governor. Her Democratic opponent, Sonia Chang-Diaz, says activists should continue to keep up pressure on lawmakers to act on gun laws. Recreational marijuana use will become legal in Rhode Island this fall. The governor signed the bill this afternoon. It will allow the sale and possession of up to one ounce of cannabis for people 21 and older. Sales can begin in December. And Boston-area entrepreneurs with military ties are competing tonight. 
to for funding to help their business. The nonprofit Massachusetts Fallen Heroes is hosting a pitch competition for military veterans or those with relatives who have died in military service. The organization's executive director, Dan Magoon, says the Corporate Accelerator Program will give away a total of $25,000 to three winners. It gives veteran entrepreneurs and Gold Star family entrepreneurs an opportunity to come in to our program get some seed money to get their company going or bolster their current operations. Massachusetts Fallen Heroes also plans to open a workshop in Boston Seaport this summer for veterans and Gold Star families who are trying to start a new venture. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England with Zootopia, June 4th, a gala supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos to inspire caring and action for wildlife. More at zoonewengland.org. In the forecast, fair weather clouds today and tonight. Dry and breezy overnight, falling to the low 50s. Tomorrow should be sunny again, highs in the mid-60s. And then sunshine takes a break on Friday as clouds move in. Should be milder, moving to the upper 70s to about 80 degrees. Cloudy and damp on Saturday, looking brighter for Sunday. 70 degrees in the Boston area. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is Enterprise AI. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The town of Uvalde, Texas, has been traumatized by the incomprehensible killings of 19 students and two teachers. It is the worst school shooting in Texas history. And as the small city fills up with investigators and grief counselors and journalists, local residents are numb. No population is prepared for this carnage, much less a laid-back South Texas ranching town. We're joined now by NPR's John Burnett, who was in Uvalde this morning. Hi, John. Hi, Elsa. So can you just, just describe the mood, all the emotions you heard while talking to people there this morning? Uh, bewilderment. Agony, anger, confusion, and lots of prayer. This is a conservative town of 15,000 tucked between the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and the beautiful Texas Hill Country. And people told us everybody knows each other in Uvalde. Folks Mm -hmm. everywhere are crying today because it's such a close-knit town. And everybody I talked to was touched by this attack in some way. I went to South Park Street, a few blocks from Robb Elementary. Some neighbors had gathered on the front porch of an elderly resident, and Jay Martin, uh, he's a 48-year-old unemployed delivery driver. He says people on his street are real neighbors. They give each other rides, they cut each other's grass and check on the old folks. And he said yesterday he heard the gunshots, then the sirens, and he walked to the school to see what was going on. He saw some of the kids going home, and Elsa, um, his description is pretty raw. A little girl came out with bloody face, and then a a little boy came out saying that, uh, Mom, my buddies, and they're dying. That was a very sad thing to hear. I also met Sylvia Martinez, a 58-year-old worker in a clothing repair shop. Her 10-year-old grandson, Darian, was at the school. 
Martina says when the shooting started, uh, police and school officials quickly evacuated the kids from the other classrooms, and then they all ran across the street to the safety of a funeral home. And um, She says that a sweet 10-year-old girl in her neighborhood was murdered. She was my neighbor. She was 10. I always see her there running around, playing with my grandkids, going to church, and a little beautiful girl. Now we're going to miss her. I imagine Uvalde has never, ever experienced anything remotely like this before. Yeah, hardly. Um, A local insurance agent, Paul Shafino, told me with tears streaming down his cheeks that people moved to Uvalde to get away from big city problems. He moved here from San Jose, California about 20 years ago for that very reason, and he loves the three-minute commute to his office on Main Street. He says he knew one of the fourth-grade teachers who was slain. I just really, really feel for the parents and... uh grandparents out there that are having to go through this. <clears throat> I know also uh, one of the teachers that passed away. I saw her picture and um, still can't process it, you know. Shafino's has typically the most excitement in Uvalde or the Border Patrol chases through town. The Rio Grande is about 60 miles from here and federal agents pursue vehicles full of smuggled migrants. We see U.S. Border Patrols and uh, custom vehicles zooming back here and forth. It's been an issue. You know, the car chases, we're kind of accustomed to that. We hear about bailouts happening in this part of town, this other. But, yeah, nothing compared to this. This was totally unexpected. Nothing compared to this. Well, President Biden spoke pretty emotionally last night and today about the school shooting. And, you know, he forcefully called out the gun lobby and the easy availability of deadly weapons in America. I'm curious, did did anyone in Uvalde react to that piece of this? Yeah. Well, first, Elsa, understand this is deep red Texas. Uvalde County went for Donald Trump by 60 percent. And I mean, when we were driving in, you see all these gun signs for gun stores. One said liquor and guns in the same establishment with the tagline only in Texas. So the notion that banning assault style rifles Mm -hmm. or somehow enhancing background checks. uh, Let's just play skeptics. Uh, Let's just say the skeptics abound. Uh, This is John Calendra, a construction company owner. This is rural Texas. Everybody's got a gun. You're not going to take away 300 million guns from people. It just ain't going to happen. The people will revolt. They want to be able to protect themselves. And we're going to have to he leave said it he there. Thinks more... That is okay. NPR's John Burnett in Uvalde, Texas. Thank you, John. Sure, Elsa. A shortage of baby formula remains a challenge for families across the U.S. Lawmakers held hearings today to try to understand how this shortage happened and why the federal government didn't act sooner. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here to tell us about that. Hi, Sydney. Hi. Would you remind us what drove this shortage in the first place? Sure. As several lawmakers pointed out today, just three companies controlled 95% of the formula formula market. So the closure of one factory had a huge impact. Abbott's Michigan factory shut down and issued a recall in February after several babies became ill and two of them died of infections from a bacteria called Cronobacter. The factory has been offline ever since, though it's working with government officials to get restarted safely. They're aiming for the first week of June. Abbott testified today. And what did Abbott say? Well, here's Abbott executive Christopher Calamari. The current infant formula shortage is heartbreaking. On behalf of everyone at Abbott, I want to express our extraordinary disappointment about the shortage. We are deeply, deeply sorry. 
He talked about what the company is doing to fix things to make sure the issues won't happen again. But when asked about whether there's a culture problem at the plant that hurt quality, he said no. The company's written testimony also emphasized that the bacteria that made the baby sick didn't match the samples of bacteria the FDA found on surfaces in the factory during its inspection. So if the bacteria samples didn't match, does that mean the factory did not make the baby sick after all, or that's unclear? So according to the FDA, Abbott is in no way off the hook. Here's Susan Main, who directs the FDA's Center for Food Safety. We can't rule in or rule out whether or not those infants, uh, their coronabacter was caused by this plant. The data just simply can't be used to inform it. The FDA didn't have factory samples from when the formula was made that these babies consumed before they got sick. The inspection didn't start until the end of January, but the first report of a sick child reached the FDA back in September. And an Abbott whistleblower contacted the agency in October alleging unsanitary conditions, falsified records, and other major problems, but the FDA didn't talk to them until late December. They got the tip in October, contacted them in December. What took so long? That was really the million-dollar question when legislators grilled FDA officials. Here's Representative Jan Schakowsky of Illinois. I'm actually pretty furious about the FDA's lack of uh, a food safety leadership, uh, communication, and action. FDA Commissioner Robert Califf acknowledged that it was too slow, and he used a vivid analogy to describe what the agency found at the plant. Let's say you had a next-door neighbor who had uh, leaks in the roof, they didn't wash their hands, they had bacteria growing all over the kitchen. You walked in and there was standing water on the counters and the floor and the kids were walking through with mud on their shoes and no one cleaning it up. Um, you probably wouldn't want your infant eating in that kitchen. He says FDA has been doing what it needed to do to get the plant back on track since then. That's NPR's pharmaceuticals correspondent, Sydney Lepkin. Sydney, thank you. You bet. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The UN's top official for human rights, Michelle Bachelet, is in China this week and will visit the western region of Xinjiang. The U.S. and others have accused the Chinese government of genocide and crimes against humanity for the way that Muslim minorities have been treated there. And as the U.N. commissioner's trip was starting, a rights group outside China posted a huge trove of photos and data online purportedly hacked from Chinese police computers in Xinjiang. They say it highlights the extent of the persecution there. NPR China Affairs correspondent John Ruwich is on the line now. Hi, John. Hey, Elsa. So this UN trip to Xinjiang, it's rare to see a trip like this, right? Yeah, it is. This one's been months in, in, in uh, there's been months of negotiations for this one and a long time coming because the last visit by a UN human rights um, high commissioner to China was 17 years ago. Wow. Uh, this is going to be a fact-finding trip. Bachelet has reportedly told diplomats ahead of time that it's not going to be an investigation, so, so she's managing expectations a bit there. 
Remember, the accusations are pretty grave. Rights groups, Western governments estimate that more than a million Uyghurs and other minorities out, out in Xinjiang were detained in the name of preemptive counterterrorism um, starting in around 2017. Um, there are accusations of forced labor, forced sterilization, that religious freedom has been sharply curtailed. The Chinese government denies any of these abuses uh, and says that Xinjiang is a prosperous, secure, and happy part of China. Right. The Chinese government continues to deny any abuses. So given that, do we know why China is even letting her in at this point? Well, China may hope that this is going to help promote the image that it's a responsible, rule-abiding member of the UN community. Um, and without a doubt, the government's going to want the trip to you know, support, in a way, its own argument that it hasn't done anything bad out in Xinjiang. So it sounds like she might not be able to actually get a true sense of what's going on there. Yeah, Xinjiang, Xinjiang's always been a tough place to report from. There's lots of surveillance. People are often reluctant to talk for their own security. Uh, when the government has organized trips out there for reporters and others, they've been aggressively stage managed. You know, on top of that, uh, Bachelet's going to be on an organized trip in a sensitive place and in a bubble, in a COVID-19, you know, bubble for her protection. Uh, she's been criticized for going out there at all because of all these restrictions. State Department spokesman Ned Price said on Tuesday it was a mistake for her to go. And Yacho Wang with Human Rights Watch says there are legitimate concerns about what kind of access she'll get out there. You know, I don't think the high commissioners will be able to see what she should be seeing for such a visit and be able to talk to she should be talking to. So the expectation should be low. I mean, I have to ask again, what's the point of this visit if in the end, Bachelet might not be able to operate freely or to get a true picture of what's even happening? Yeah, it's a valid question. I mean, uh, Wang, again, from Human Rights Watch, says there's still value in the trip. You know, Bachelet should attempt to meet dissidents and the family members of detained Uyghurs when she's out there. Whether she does or not, she should, you know, she should be transparent and vocal about, you know, what barriers she runs into, if any. Mm -hmm. And just real quick, tell us a little bit about that police data dump. Well, the group is called the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. They, they posted online what they call the Xinjiang Police Files. It's thousands of photos. There are other documents. And they say they show that Beijing has been lying about the rights violations out in Xinjiang. China's foreign ministry says it's just the latest example of anti-China forces trying to spread lies and smear Xinjiang. That is NPR's John Ruwich. Thank you, John. Anytime. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up, we'll hear about the new podcast, Will Be Wild, that explores the system failures that allowed the January 6th insurrection to happen. In the forecast, a beautiful May day today, another nice night ahead tonight. Clear skies, breezy and cool, about 53 for a low tonight. Then for tomorrow, sunny again, up around 67 degrees. Should have clouds move in for Friday, winds picking up, temperatures rising into the 70s. As of now, it looks like it should stay in the 70s over the weekend. It is 65 degrees now in Boston at 549. WBUR supporters include Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style event, window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com.
There is a growing fraternity of people in this country who are the parents of children killed at school in mass shootings. And they try to help the latest set of survivors and give them some comfort and tell them what to expect and offer themselves as a resource to people. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This note, the city of Cambridge is warning residents to expect street closures tomorrow through Sunday in and around Harvard and Kendall squares. That's because of several events that include commencements at Harvard and MIT. Join WBR reporter Barbara Moran Wednesday, June 8th for a conversation on local sustainable eating, along with a gardening demonstration and farmer's market. It's all at WBUR City Space. Get tickets at WBUR.org events. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. As the House Select Committee investigating January 6th gears up for major public hearings next month, it's worth noting that they have interviewed more than a thousand witnesses already. That's just one small reminder of the sheer scope of what happened on January 6th, the massive array of individuals whose lives have been altered by the attack. From the people who participated in the insurrection, to those who tried to stop it, to the family members of criminal defendants now reflecting on what went so wrong. A new podcast delves into many of these individual lives. It's called Will Be Wild, a phrase borrowed from then-President Trump, who beckoned his followers to show up on January 6th. Will Be Wild is hosted by Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Meritz, two journalists who've been covering Donald Trump for years, including in their previous podcast, Trump Inc. But as Ilya Meritz explains, the two projects are really different. We had been looking at Trump as a presidency that was rife with conflicts of interest and ethical conflicts. We had a businessman president, right? And and that's the lens that we took to Donald Trump for four years. And the insurrection and the riot of the Capitol really forced us to look at this in another way and ask, what are the systems that were supposed to protect us and in what ways did they fail? So this podcast is a lot less about Trump and a lot more about how law enforcement and intelligence agencies changed over the four years of the Trump presidency and also what the Trump presidency did to the body politic and sort of the spread of uh, anti-government movements, right-wing movements, uh, white nationalist movements that all kind of fed in to January 6th. Yeah. I mean, this podcast, it tells a story from so many different vantage points. Like almost every episode focuses on new characters, which I know was a choice by both of you. And I want to talk about how you chose the people you zeroed in on, starting with Natalie Jangula and Danelle Harvin. I mean, Jangula is a former Mrs. Idaho and Harvin was an intelligence official during January 6th. And they had very different experiences on that day. Let's take a listen. And, you know, I always say that if I could do it again, I would have taken my kids. It truly was that safe because it would have just been a once in a lifetime opportunity for them to be a part of something that was historic. And I wish I could have shared that with my kids. You know, 9-11, Sandy Hook, Hurricane Sandy. I've been in some very dangerous physical environments. This was a little bit different. It was more of a tingle. This tingling in the back of my head. I mean, diametrically opposed perspectives of a single day. I'm curious, by placing these people side by side in the same episode, 
How did you want people to better understand that day? We wanted to show people the lives that were most directly impacted by January 6th. And so Danelle Harvin is a local D.C. intelligence official. He's a guy who is picking up chatter from from open sources on social media and elsewhere that a lot of people are coming to the Capitol and that they seem to be very angry. And a lot of them are interested in Congress specifically. Right. So that's Danelle Harvin, the intel guy. Then there's Natalie Jangula, and she's a citizen. She's a uh, a Trump supporter. She's a re- lifelong Republican who lives in Idaho and feels motivated to go to the Capitol, uh, in part because the president called his supporters to the Capitol. And for her, the way she describes the event, it's almost like a rock concert. It's that feeling yeah. of being around people who are hearing the same music that you're hearing and responding to it in real time. And it ended up being a really impactful event for her because she ran for city council in her town, uh, Nampa, Idaho, and won. So for me, talking with Natalie really revealed that January 6th was not just about systems failure. It was actually a really motivating event for a lot of people who decided to get involved in government, actually get involved in our democracy. Right. Well, you know, it wasn't only Danelle Harvin who had concerns about how ill-prepared the local and federal governments were to deal with this attack. Andrea, I mean, you did a lot of reporting in this podcast about the missed red flags, the lack of agility on the day of. And I'm just curious, what were you most surprised by as you were learning about how then-President Trump's leadership contributed to what happened on January 6th? I think the thing that was surprising to both of us is we both were in New York City on 9-11. We covered 9-11. We watched the construction of the whole national security apparatus, the Department of Homeland Security. And we asked ourselves, how could it have failed so spectacularly on January 6th? And one of the things that we found is that there was a trend that predated Trump, a real reluctance to confront anti-government extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism, but that under Trump, this trend was amplified, that people were given direct instructions, do not pursue these domestic terrorism avenues, do not put these documents into effect, do not go after this. And it became clearer and clearer that the officials who were trying to protect the homeland were really struggling with what do they do when the threat is exacerbated from the resident of the White House. Yeah. Andrea, You had talked to Chris Krebs, who used to work on election security at the Department of Homeland Security. And, you know, at one point during a media appearance, he had said this particular quote about January 6th. We didn't dodge a bullet. That was a practice run. What do you think now, like after doing all of this reporting, do you feel that we learned enough from January 6th to better stop another attack like it? Or are you more doubtful? of that now? Uh, I think in some ways both. When we started this project, I think we had no idea all of the ways that President Trump and his allies had tried to stop the peaceful transfer of power. We know a lot more about that now. We know how there were sort of institutional blocks to that happening that might not be around if there's a, a second test of this system in this way. But at the same time, we also have tremendous amounts of information. And I think it's sort of a real, we're at a real fulcrum in democracy about whether, you know, sort of people want to take these things and put in institutional guardrails and defenses or not. And I think, you know, we will see how this plays out before the 2024 election. I I, I do think the fundamental question, though, that Andrea mentioned 
of what do you do when the threat is being amplified by the person in the White House, that is just a question that is so monumental that we have barely begun to deal with. And, I, and I, I, I'm not sure that anybody has an answer for that. So then I just have to ask you guys this. When do you think you will ever stop covering Donald Trump? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea, Elsa. <laughs> My goodness. There, there, is so, um, there are always new things to learn about Donald Trump and the world around him. You know, I think we both feel sort of bound by a sense of duty to the knowledge that we've built up to keep looking at this. But as Trump often says, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Meritz, their new podcast, Will Be Wild, is available now. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you, Elsa. Thank you, Elsa. Great Elsa. talking to you. Really good talking to you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mathnasium, committed to boosting students' confidence, critical thinking, and math grades and scores with in-person or online instruction. Each student follows a customized learning plan. More at mathnasium.com. And from Fisher Investments Wealth Management, offering guidance on retirement income, social security, and estate planning. More at fisherinvestments.com. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft, at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR. Celtics continued their playoff run tonight down in Miami. Game 5 of the Eastern Conference Finals start up at 8.30 between the Celts and the Heat. Best of seven series is tied at 2-all. First team to win four games advances to the NBA Finals. And Rich Hill does the pitching honors tonight as the Sox take on the White. Game 2 of the three-game series in Chicago starts at 8.10 tonight. In the forecast, clear skies should be nice around low 50s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny again with highs in the mid-60s. It's 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Pops at Symphony Hall. Enjoy film nights, Broadway stars, a gospel performance, and a celebration of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. BostonPops.org. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Authorities investigate the gunman who killed 19 children and two adults in Texas yesterday. Already misinformation, rumors, and conspiracy theories have emerged in some far-right social media circles. False flag accusations of there being crisis actors, accusations that the FBI or the CIA coordinated an actual shooting. I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead, calling out conspiracy theories as they arise. It's been two years since a police officer killed George Floyd on a Minneapolis street corner, setting off worldwide protests. What police reforms have resulted? And a new study finds an HIV drug can reverse memory loss in aging mice, memory that helps humans do things such as match a name with a face. It's 6.01 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. We're getting more details about the suspect in the elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas yesterday that killed 19 students and two staff members. As Jack Williams from Houston Public Media reports, Governor Greg Abbott says the alleged shooter was a high school dropout. At a press conference in the town about 85 miles west of San Antonio, a sometimes emotional Abbott said the gunman allegedly posted on Facebook 30 minutes before he entered Robb Elementary School with an AR-15 rifle he had purchased in March. Reportedly, there has been no criminal history identified yet. He may have had a juvenile record, but that is yet to be determined. There was no known mental health history. Abbott's Democratic challenger in the Texas governor's race, Beto O'Rourke, approached the stage during the press conference and shouted at Abbott in protest of the governor's response to shootings in the state before he was escorted away. For NPR News, I'm Jack Williams in Houston. The National Rifle Association, meanwhile, is holding its annual convention in the shadow of the second-worst elementary school shooting in U.S. history in the very state where it took place, Texas. Despite the deaths of 19 children and two adults at the hands of the 18-year-old wielding a semi-automatic-style weapon, this year's annual convention of the gun rights group will be held in Houston this weekend. Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner is under mounting pressure to cancel the event, but says the city can't break its contract with the group. Among those slated to speak at the convention, Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Senator Ted Cruz. Russian forces are continuing to push their offensive across much of eastern Ukraine. That includes the city of Severodonetsk, as NPR's Ryan Lucas reports from the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. The Russian military is pounding cities and towns across Donbass as its troops look to push through Ukrainian defenses. Russia has been hitting the city of Severodonetsk for weeks with missiles, rockets and artillery. Olga, a resident who just escaped to the nearby city of Kramatorsk and is awaiting evacuation further west, says the situation in Sverdonetsk is dire. Half of the city is destroyed, she says, and half remains standing. She and other evacuees say there's no power, no gas, and no water. Residents, they say, are forced to cook on open fires outside. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Pokrovsk. Ukraine. Even as more Starbucks workers have been saying union yes, the actual hard work of winning changes like better pay and more reliable schedules can take a long time. Pictures of jubilant workers at dozens of the company's U.S. stores are commonplace, but actually negotiating labor agreements with the company appears to be another matter. Comes amid tensions between the company and the union. National Labor Relations Board says it's already filed 45 complaints against Starbucks for various labor law violations, including firing workers for union activity. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow is up 191 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts schools increased police presence today as a precaution following the Texas school shooting yesterday. The districts include North Andover, Seekonk, and Belmont. In Belmont, someone made concerning social media posts last night about a school in town. Police say they located the person and addressed the issue. Meanwhile, Boston police say they'll be assessing security at schools in the city. At a news conference today, Mayor Michelle Wu said shootings such as yesterday's are possible anywhere. We are not immune from what we see happening in other parts of the country. I have full faith and trust in our ability to respond, but we don't even ever want to be in that position to begin with, and we do so by building the safe, welcoming, healthy communities that we know is possible here. 
Boston School Superintendent Brenda Caselli has spoken, said the shooting should prompt lawmakers to pass stronger gun legislation. The school district says many of the city schools gave students time today to process the shooting in Texas. It says many schools had mental health providers from the community on hand to support students. Religious leaders in Massachusetts are among those responding after the shooting. Reverend Mariama White-Hammond is the founding pastor of the New Roots AME Church in Dorchester. She tells WBR's Radio Boston she is angry angry and heartbroken. I also not just prayed for those who are suffering, but really asking God, how have we come to the point in this country where this is just normal? White Hammond says she believes most Americans want common sense changes to the country's gun laws. She's also urging stronger community involvement to take care of the needs and development of all children. Chelsea Police Chief Brian Kyes is in line for a federal law enforcement job. Today, President Biden nominated him to become the U.S. Marshal for Massachusetts. The Marshal Service is the enforcement arm of the federal court system. It includes duties such as the apprehending of fugitives. Kyes has been police chief in Chelsea since 2007. He's also the president of the Massachusetts Major City Chiefs of Police Association. The Senate will consider the nomination. In the forecast, a nice evening tonight. Clear skies overnight, falling to the low 50s. Tomorrow, back up around the mid to upper 60s. Plenty of sunshine. Then the end of the week should turn cloudy. Gray skies Friday. Some showers likely on Saturday. Well into the 70s both days. Sunshine should return on Sunday. 64 degrees now in the Boston area at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, providing access to ebooks and research content on the go with the EBSCO mobile app. Information about EBSCO's commitment to researchers is at EBSCO.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. We begin this hour in Uvalde, Texas, where we're learning more about what happened yesterday at Robb Elementary School, where 19 children were killed along with two adults. Texas Governor Greg Abbott spoke at a press conference earlier today. Our job is to ensure that the community is not going to be ripped apart. All Texans must come together and support the families who have been affected by this horrific tragedy. Paul Flav with Texas Public Radio is in Uvalde and was at that press conference. Paul, thank you for taking time to share your reporting with us today. Thank you. What more did you learn today about how this attack unfolded? Well, the press conference was at Uvalde High School where 18-year-old Salvador Rolando Ramos would have been a senior. It was reported he dropped out. According to Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Ramos shot his grandmother in the face, and then she called the police. The two lived together only a couple of blocks from uh, the school. Authorities say Ramos fled and crashed the pickup truck he was driving in a ditch outside the school. The Texas Department of Public uh, Safety director said Ramos was not being chased by law enforcement. Ramos made it past the campus resource officer who had engaged him but did not fire a weapon. And the shooter was able to enter the school through a back door into the school and into a classroom, and then he began shooting. Border Patrol agents and local law enforcement found the classroom after waiting 40 minutes. They breached the room, and a Border Patrol agent killed him. The investigation is in its preliminary stages and still ongoing. Authorities say they believe all the children were killed by Rama. And what else do we know about this gunman? Uh, authorities confirmed that his name is Salvador Ramos. Uh, we learned that he was a quiet kid, according to a couple of students that I spoke to outside the high school today. While Uvalde is the kind of place where people know everyone, they just sort of knew him as another classmate, one who at times was bullied for his speech impediment. 
Abbott said Ramos didn't have a mental health diagnosis, didn't have an adult criminal record, and it wasn't clear if he had run across the juvenile system. Is anything known yet for why he did this a reason? The Texas Department of Public Safety said they don't know of a motive. Governor Abbott says Ramos didn't show outward signs until about 30 minutes before the shooting, when he says Ramos posted on Facebook. Since then, we've learned that Facebook says Ramos sent private messages and didn't post publicly. Abbott said Ramos first communicated, quote, I'm going to shoot my grandmother, then I shot my grandmother. And then 15 minutes before he arrived at the school, Abbott said Ramos communicated he'd shoot an elementary school. Do we know much about the weapons he used? Ramos uh, purchased two AR-15s shortly after his 18th birthday in March. He abandoned one in the truck after crashing and used one in Rob Elementary. In response to a question about whether 18-year-olds should have access to weapons like the one used in the shooting, uh, here we can listen to what the governor said. The ability of an 18-year-old to uh, buy a long gun has uh, been in place uh, in the state of Texas for more than 60 years. Anybody who shoots somebody else has a mental health challenge, period. Abbott focused a lot on the importance of mental health and providing mental health care to the community, committing to ensuring Uvalde has access to mental health care it needs now. But we should point out that uh, he said uh, earlier in the news conference that the government himself did not have a history of mental illness that they're aware of. But it is worth noting that Texas ranks last in access to mental health personnel of all the states. It's especially bad for youth and in rural areas. That is Paul Flav of Texas Public Radio telling us the latest details and what we've learned about the shooting yesterday at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 children were killed along with two adults. Paul, thank you again for sharing your reporting. Thank you. It was two years ago today that a police officer killed George Floyd on a Minneapolis street corner, setting off global racial justice protests. Derek Chauvin is in prison for murder, and even though the three other former officers who are on duty with him are likely to face prison time as well, many Minneapolis residents say the systemic changes needed to prevent such tragedies are still far from reality. Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio reports. At the intersection where George Floyd was killed, cars and trucks trickle through a makeshift roundabout that encircles a black power fist sculpted of steel. Soon after the murder, people from around the world began coming here to pay their respects to Floyd, and they're still coming. Lamira Sanders of Columbia, South Carolina, says she's hopeful that the racial justice movement sparked here will bring a fundamental shift in American policing. There is a place of sadness that still looms here. And it is our prayer that one day that justice will be served and that this will not be a problem. You know, there's plenty work to be done. While countless numbers of people have visited George Floyd Square over the last two years, Marsha Howard has been a constant presence here, leading a protest occupation of about a dozen people who keep the area tidy and watch uh, for trouble. Sure if you are At a meeting up, earlier this week, they discussed how to handle the crowds expected for the anniversary, starting with tonight's candlelight vigil. You make sure that you don't overextend yourself. Uh, we said that a year ago, you know, there were people who were doing 14-hour days out here in the sun. Minneapolis um, city leaders I, hope to build a permanent memorial here as part of a plan to rebuild the intersection. But Howard, a black 49-year-old high school English teacher and retired Marine, vows not to let that happen until there are substantive improvements in the way police treat people of color. The only thing that seems to change anything in the city of Minneapolis is collective action. We're standing in place in situ. 
where a black man was lynched in public. And we're saying we're not moving. But Howard says little has fundamentally changed. She points to February's police killing of 22-year-old Amir Locke during a no-knock raid at the Minneapolis apartment where he was sleeping. Locke, who was black, was holding a gun, but he was not suspected of a crime, nor was he named in the search warrant. The calls for police reform were loudest in the weeks just after Floyd's murder, when Councilmember Jeremiah Ellison stood on a stage at a park with eight of his colleagues. At their feet, in large block letters, were the words, defund police. All right, they're telling me to say it again. This council is going to dismantle this police department. That did not happen. The council has continued to fund new recruit classes to replace the 300 officers who've left the force, which is plagued by low morale. And despite a poll showing deep mistrust of the MPD, last November, 56 percent of voters rejected a proposal to replace it with a new safety agency that would have included law enforcement, quote, if necessary. Cami Chavis, who leads the criminal justice program at Wake Forest University's law school, says the plan was bold, but its lack of details likely scared off voters. I think it was probably just a bridge too far for some people to say, well, wait a minute, we're going to do away with what we have and we're not sure what this new thing is you're proposing. Chavis says any transformational shift will come by court order. A U.S. Justice Department investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department is expected to result in judicial oversight through a consent decree. Mayor Jacob Fry has made some tweaks to policing policy, including banning chokeholds, low-level traffic stops, and no-knock raids. But critics point out that the latest police labor contract does not include tougher disciplinary procedures. While calls for significant lasting change are widespread, momentum has been uneven. Meanwhile, Marsha Howard and her fellow activists say they'll continue to honor Floyd's memory, not only with rallies and vigils, but by being present here for as long as it takes to bring meaningful change to policing. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in Minneapolis. My Unsung Hero is a series from the team at Hidden Brain, and it features stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression. Today's story comes from Walter Delgado. He grew up in El Salvador, and when he was 11, he began a dangerous journey with his grandfather to join his mother in the United States. They traveled by bus up through Central America and onto the Mexican border. Because they were undocumented, they had to make the last leg of their journey across the desert in the middle of the night by foot. Delgado remembers that his feet were hurting and he was freezing cold. Somewhere along the way, he met another traveler named Modesto. And I remember we just had, you know, normal, casual, like, small talk, like, where are you from, you know, all that. I didn't know that guy from back home. I didn't know anything about him. After six hours of walking and my feet started giving out, like, I, I was tired and... I just remember that I told him, like, hey, man, I can't, I can't my legs. And he just pulled me up, put me on his back, and started walking. And he told me, don't worry, we're almost there. We're going to make it. I'm going to make sure you, you're going to make it. And those are the words that he kept saying. You know, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. I was just worried about my grandpa as well, and I was worried about myself, you know, like, you get those thoughts, you know, like, am I going to be left behind? I mean, there's so many people that they don't make it in that journey. So, you know, we just met on the trip. And to have the goodness, the willingness to carry someone, I must have been at least 90 pounds, probably 100 pounds. 
<laughs> so he easily probably carried me for two to three hours. I am not exaggerating. And I just imagine, like, you know, he must have been tired too, you know, the whole time. It, it just blows my mind. And it's one of those defining moments in my life where, like, it gives me hope and I can see that human beings can be a channel of goodness to the world. Everything that I have now, everything that I've accomplished now, it takes me back to that moment. I can make more money. I can live comfortably. I have a good life now, thank God, and thanks to Modesto, because he was the one that made it all possible. Walter Delgado and his grandfather eventually made it to their destination. Delgado became a U.S. citizen and now lives in Houston and has a job he loves. His grandfather is now in his 80s. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, a new study finds an HIV drug that can reverse memory loss in aging mice. That story's coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Stocks were on an upswing today. The Dow rose more than a half percent, 192 points, to finish the day at 32,120. S&P picked up about a full percent to close at 39.79. NASDAQ pulled in more than one and a half percent to close at 11,435. Shares of Springfield-based gunmaker Smith & Wesson stock rose today after the deadly mass shooting in Texas yesterday. The company's stock price went up nearly 7 percent gun company shares often rise after mass shootings in response to fears that the incidents will lead to new gun control measures. The forecast is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Jennifer and Robert Waldron Civic Fund, supporting education, equity, and truth. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios designed to help create a healthy planet and just society. Zevin.com slash WBUR. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. It's Game 5 for the Celtics and Miami Heat tonight in the Eastern Conference Finals. Back down to Miami, the best-of-seven series is tied at two. The team that wins tonight will be one game away from the NBA Finals. And Rich Hill does the pitching honors tonight as the Red Sox take on the White in Chicago. Game 2 of the three-game series starts at 8-10. Forecast lovely this evening. Clear skies tonight falling to the low 50s. And tomorrow back up around the mid to upper 60s. Plenty of sunshine. End of the week tur- should turn cloudy with gray skies Friday. Some showers likely Saturday. Well into the 70s both days. Sunshine should return on Sunday. This is WBUR 63 degrees at 621. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. 
And I'm Elsa Chang. Well before verifiable information came out regarding the shooter who took 21 lives at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, misinformation, rumors, and conspiracy theories were already rampant in some far-right circles of social media. Some of this has come to be standard practice, since similar tactics were deployed after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting a decade ago. But there are some differences this time around. NPR's Odette Youssef covers domestic extremism and joins us now. Hi, Odette. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what are some of the threads that you saw emerging even as we are still learning about what happened in Uvalde? Well, immediately uh, we were seeing posts that assumed without any verifiable evidence things about the shooter's identity. You know, one of them was a claim that the shooter was undocumented. Well, yesterday Texas Governor Abbott uh, said that Ramos was a U.S. citizen. Um, another rumor also was that he's transgendered. Um, this appears to be based on some photos pulled from his presumed Instagram account. But again, there's no factual known information to base this on. I think something that's been particularly concerning about this is uh, that some elected officials, you know, I'm, I'm uh, particularly uh, noting Republican Representative Paul Gosar uh, amplified that line on his Twitter account. Um, and then later deleted it after it prompted a backlash. Um, But as the day progressed, we also started to see the conspiracy theories come out. Conspiracy theories, like what? What have you been seeing or hearing? Well, as with so many of these violent events, including January 6th and the more recent racist shooting in Buffalo, uh, the false flag argument is out there. Uh, You're probably well familiar with this by this point, Elsa, Mm -hmm. but it claims without evidence that the attack was orchestrated by the government as an excuse to curtail gun rights. Uh, There's also another conspiracy theory floating out there that says this shooter was part of a secret illegal CIA operation where the agency was attempting to brainwash subjects by using LSD or psychological torture. Of course, there's absolutely no evidence for this. And in fact, that program ended back in 1973. Um, Sarah Aniano is an extremism research I spoke to. She focuses on the rhetoric of the far right on social media. And she says it's unlikely these conspiracy theories are going to die down. This is the worst case scenario. Without a manifesto and a known motive, the speculation is just going to get worse and worse as to what drove the shooter to do it. But it also provides really fertile ground for more conspiracy theories to sort of accumulate and spread in the information ecosystem. The waters are very muddy right now. And even for extremism researchers, we're not entirely sure what to do with the limited information that we have. Hmm. I mean, we know that these conspiracy theories, they take root during and after tragedies like what we saw yesterday. But I understand that you're seeing something else this time. What's different? Well, also, if we look back at the conspiracy narrative that took hold after the Sandy Hook massacre, um, it really traced back largely to one person, uh, Alex Jones of the far right media platform called Infowars. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, it took a decade, but the families who were traumatized and hurt by those lies have finally won defamation suits against him, and he's now filing for bankruptcy. You know, this time around, it's different. We're not yet seeing any similar central figure pushing conspiracy theories around what happened in Texas. Instead, we're seeing these narratives pop up in a much more grassroots fashion. 
And extremism researchers like Aniano said, you know, they say that these are the real seeds that were planted by Jones 10 years ago. And they also reflect a much more widespread paranoia and distrust of federal government that's been taking hold on the right. That is NPR's Odette Youssef. Thank you, Odette. You're welcome. A drug used to treat HIV-AIDS may have another unexpected use. It appears to reverse a form of memory loss, at least in mice. NPR's John Hamilton reports that the finding suggests a new approach to treating brain changes associated with aging or even disease. As a brain gets older, it can still form new memories, but it has trouble linking them together. Alceno Silva, a neuroscientist at the University of California, Los Angeles, explains the problem this way. You learn about something, but you can't remember when you heard it. You can't remember who told you about. These incidents happen more and more often as we go from middle age into older age. Silva says scientists have known that for a long time. What we haven't known is how we do this, how the brain does this. Silva's lab was studying a molecule called CCR5 that helps the brain separate recent memories from older ones. Silva doubted that this same molecule could play a role in memory problems associated with aging. But we checked. (laughs) And voila! It turned out that levels of CCR5 increase with age and start to interfere with the process that helps us do things like link a name and a face. Then you no longer link memories after that because that molecule turns off memory mechanisms. Silva's lab showed that in mice, memory linking could be restored by blocking CCR5. But they wanted to do that in people as well as mice. The unbelievable lack of all of this is that there is an FDA-approved drug. A drug called Maraviroc. It blocks CCR5 to prevent HIV from entering immune cells. So we took this drug, we gave the middle-aged animals, and this drug gave you the same thing. It restored memory linking. The results, which appear in the journal Nature, are limited to mice, but they hold promise for aging people and even for stroke patients. Several years ago, Silva and Dr. S. Thomas Carmichael, the chair of neurology at UCLA, did a study that showed levels of CCR5 rise sharply after a stroke. Carmichael says in the short term, this activates systems that help brain cells survive. The problem is those systems stay active and then they limit in weeks and months the ability of those brain cells to recover. Because the cells can't form the new links needed to carry out tasks like moving an arm or a leg. Mice who got Maraviroc didn't have this problem and recovered faster. And the team found that stroke patients with naturally low levels of CCR5 also recovered faster. Carmichael says the findings together suggest a drug like Maraviroc could help people with a wide range of brain problems you might have an effect in Alzheimer's disease and stroke and Parkinson's and also in spinal cord injury. Carmichael is part of a team that is now studying Maraviroc in people who've had a stroke. John Hamilton, NPR News. Every day, our daily news podcast, Consider This, takes one big story in the news and helps make sense of it. Today, in nearly 10 years between elementary school massacres in Newtown, Connecticut, and Uvalde, Texas, what have lawmakers in Washington done to pass any sort of gun control? That's on this afternoon's episode of Consider This.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. A lovely evening. Clear skies tonight, falling to the low 50s. Tomorrow, back up around the mid to upper 60s. Lots of sunshine tomorrow. Then the end of the week should turn cloudy with gray skies on Friday and some showers likely on Saturday, well into the 70s both days. Sunday should turn sunny. Sunset tonight is 8.08. This is WBUR. Win a farm share from Sienna Farms or a Sunbug solar installation in the WBUR Gala auction. Bid now at WBUR.org gala. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at LizLinder.com.